The Money Podcast with your hosts, Justin Harrison and David Bester. Money, 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 money. Let's talk about money. Today we chat to the Chief Commercial Officer at Time Bank. He has an incredible track record with 11 years experience in the banking sector. He has a great passion for uplifting South Africans and designing financial services that provides value to the lives of those previously excluded from the banking sector. As a fairly new bank in South Africa, Time Bank have recently crossed their 5 million customer mark, which is absolutely incredible. Welcome, Cheslin Jacobs. It's great having you here today. Hi, Davi. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. We still get that excited about the numbers as well it's 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 good to be a part of something that never seems to get old as well yeah so so super excited to be here yeah i mean that is quite incredible i was reading the same article when i saw the or when i saw the five million mark thing so there was another one of the biggest banks actually in south africa having 10 million customers so what you guys have achieved is definitely nothing short of amazing yeah, so. and and those banks are almost this age of dinosaurs right exactly so, so it's it's good that the that the new blood in the industry can kind of facilitate change and and rapid change of note and and i think that's important for end users i think the most powerful thing for end users is choice and for the longest time i don't think we've had enough choice in banking in south africa so we welcome even more new entrants. I love how everyone navigates the competitive landscape in our country, you know, the uh, age of dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, still, I'm still on the young side, so yeah, <laughs> in these 11 years of experience, I'm like, Jesus, I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, but, but it's gone by quickly, so yeah, super fun. Yeah, look, I mean, we live in the digital age and this industry is ripe for, for change, you know, so good time to, to be in the sector you guys where you guys are. But we want to chat to you about some of the personal things when it comes to Cheslands. We're not going to be talking about Time Bank too much today. Of course, there's a lot of information about Time Bank, but there's very little information actually about you, Cheslin, as I was doing this, the research for this interview. So I want to know if you have to sum up your career, can you sum that up quickly? And then also the most, most important career lesson you have learned. Yeah, it's probably the word I'd always use is fulfilling, you know, and it's probably why I use that word is I don't see it as a career. You know, so I don't work or I don't do what I do to call it get ahead or climb in any corporate ladder. I think we, we live in a country and I'm, I think I'm part of a generation that has an obligation to future generations. So I think through the work we do every day, it's about what foundations we get to lay for our kids and their kids and their kids' kids to live in a very different environment, a very different country to what I grew up in, to what my parents grew up in, to what my grandparents grew up in. So I think we still, or at least I believe I'm still kind of part of that generation. So I don't see it as a career. I believe in doing what I think is right and required. And if that takes me places, that takes me places, right? And and if it doesn't, it doesn't. So, so I think the word is fulfilling because that's what it's been to me. I think we get through our work, there's very tangible kind of artifacts that you get a sense of the, the impact you're having on, on people's lives. Mm. Uh, so that's massively important to me. And I think that's probably one of the most important lessons I've learned is you need to back yourself, you know? And I think again, growing up the way I grew up, where I come from, and not only me, millions of other people like me most probably, is I think we most probably notoriously bad at that. You know, we, we cast doubt over our own ability way too easily. And I've learned and or, or taught myself uh, to back myself all the time. So when I do what I do, be it work, uh, be it sport, 
dispute, whatever the case is, I don't often think there are people better than me. Uh, mm. And what that does to me is just continues to drive me forward. Mm. Because at the same time, I think everybody else wants to be as good as I am potentially. So by backing yourself, I think you continuously just reset what the so-called ceiling potentially is. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. You know, we've interviewed so many people and they all say the same thing. All of them have that unshakable confidence in themselves. And I think, like you said as well, a lot of people don't have that. And it's a, it's a very important thing to learn. 100%. And I've, I mean, uh, I, again, being part of, of the bank as well as a growing organization, there's lots of young people. What I often hear them say is as this confidence grows and as they start to kind of find their own voice in business, outside of business, is they often say, I didn't realize I knew that much, mm. you know, because now suddenly they mm. find themselves in environments where they might have to share their knowledge, where they might get asked these kind of questions and then share their opinion, where historically they've not always been provided those platforms. And then when they talk and when they're done talking, they realize, did I just say that? And it's because I don't think there's enough confidence just in your normal ability, right? And, and I think as that grows, you will you'll speak more, you'll share knowledge more. Mm. And as that confidence grows, I think you start spreading, spreading that. Again, you said we live in the digital age. I personally think that information becomes the leveler in South Africa. Mm. You know, people say money mm. and resources, etc. I mm. think it's information. I look at my, I've got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and I, in conversation with them, I'm like, there's no way I said these things when I was eight or five. Mm. And it's not because they, I mean, they live a very different life to what I lived when I was eight or five. But I don't think that's the main ingredient. It's the fact that they're exposed to so much more, that mm. they see so much more. So I think as a human, you've got this innate ability to absorb, right? But you've got to have the confidence to spew it back out. And I think as that grows, I think we're in for a really, really exciting journey with future generations. Yeah. And I think yeah. there's a couple of interesting points there, things that we often touch on. You know, we, we talk about the fact that money alone is not going to solve the problems in this country. We have to start by providing resources and, you know, not to, not to politicize what we're saying, but you're talking about finding confidence. And I think there's a generation that is coming through that still has to find their confidence. I talk about empty suits. There's a lot of empty suits walking around at the moment. They've got access to finance. They've got access to careers and jobs because of a new dispensation but they haven't got the confidence yet they don't necessarily believe in themselves and the result of that on a very deeply emotional level is that we've got people wearing their wealth on their wrists we've got people buying cars to impress their neighbors because they lack the self-confidence 100 percent. so you try and plug that gap with these so-called material things, right? And it's interesting you suggesting that money alone won't solve it. The reality is that if money could solve the problems, the world would have no problems. Exactly. There's enough money in the world to solve problems if money was the solution. There's over enough money in the world to solve these problems. It's clearly not the solution. Right? Exactly. And like I said, I like it's, it's, it's confidence and people plug the gaps with things that other people can see. Mm. But it's things people see for five seconds and forget they've seen it, you know? So does it really matter? And I always say, if I take the inner accountant in me, I take a balance sheet view on these things. And what people often do is take an income statement view on these things. Mm -hmm. Income statement will say, what does it look like now? Mm -hmm. so do I drive a fancy car now? Do I wear a fancy watch on my wrist now? Do I wear a fancy pair of shoes now? And that's a very income statement view. Balance sheet view is, what does this look like in five years from now? What does this look like in 10 years from mm -hmm. now? And it's a very different way to think about, I suppose, the world and your, and, and your individual life. But it's worked for me, right? It doesn't mean it's going to work for anybody else, but it works for me. And it's, it's something I'm very willing to preach. 
I think it's universal and it's something we preach very hard. And, you know, we talk about the language of money. We talk about the language you use around children. We talk about the language you use around people that you're trying to inspire. And the language of money is very important. If you breed a scarcity mindset around your children, that is what they're going to have. We have a generation of people here who have a scarcity mindset because they grew up under apartheid. And so this has been the framework for the reality. I think it is important that we now focus on the fact that we can't change this current generation necessarily, but we have to look forward to the next couple of generations. And we have a responsibility to change the future chapters of this country. Yeah, 100%, you know, it's if I, I genuinely, and you know, people will say don't judge and like I can be harsh when it comes to these things. Mm. I feel that if you buy the means and you're not voluntarily making a contribution every day to what the future looks like, the actual people you're stealing from are the next generation. Absolutely. Right? And, and I'd hate to sit one day when I can no longer work and, you know, potentially drawing down on a pension of some sort. Mm -hmm. I'd hate to sit back one day and then look back and think like, gee, was these kids are struggling with the same stuff I struggled with. Mm. That would be sinful. It'd be an injustice, yeah. right? I agree with yeah. you. So, Jason, I want to ask you something. When it comes to money and wealth, because obviously your, your upbringing, I think, speaks to a lot of people that come from perhaps a very similar place, because South Africa is that kind of place. A lot of people come from a place of hardship. When you go back to your childhood, did you ever look at wealth a certain kind of way in that you aspired to it? Was this a goal? And was this something that you held at the front of your mind? No, I can't, I can't say I did. And I suppose it's the construct of what I grew up or where I grew up, right? So I grew up with my grandparents in a, in a small colored community on the Cape Flats. And the reality is in a place like that, everybody else looks like you. Everybody <laughs> else's financial situation is as similar as yours is, right? The school you go to, it's, that's what it is. So, so that, mm. very, that very quickly becomes what is perceived as normal. Mm. So I can't say that I had any kind of aspirations to be wealthy, in, mm -hmm. you know, in inverted commas. Do I now understand, call it what wealth can create? Yeah, I, I understand that now. How did I learn those lessons? I think just by day-to-day -day life and kind of piece this puzzle together very, very slowly. So it definitely gives you options, which, which I think is, is massively important. And it's weird that you know, there's benefits to growing up the way myself and many other kids in the country grew up are still growing up. I think you have a very different level of appreciation for what you've acquired. It's most probably the one thing that makes me the most nervous about my kids, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. My wife and I always have this debate, is that they go to a very different kind of school than I went to. You know, look at their school fees, and I'm, I don't think 12 years of school cost me what I have to pay for one year for them. Mm. We often have the debate as to how do we ensure that they understand the value of what they're receiving? Because when you start taking that for granted, and then I think you start plugging the gaps with material things, you know. Yep. So, so I wouldn't say I necessarily had any aspiration. I've learned very quickly what options it can do and like as a resource. But I still I still treat it as an enabler of sort. You know? It's a resource, right? And you know, it's it's so interesting you say that because and it's something I personally get very angry with. You find these middle class people who've never been hungry, who've never been without a meal, who don't know what it means to suffer the indignity of not having money, who've never had to go to a government hospital and be turned away. And then they talk about money doesn't buy you happiness. It <laughs> pisses me off to a point where my blood boils because I've been in that position. Yeah. And so I know 
that money buys you dignity. Don't let anybody fool you. And I think those lived realities are important, right? It is. Again, like I said, it's weird to kind of think of it that way, that there's certain benefits. Mm. So I, must, I suppose the kind of lesson you pull out of that is, is again, as a parent, you know, is instinctively what you try and do is to provide for your kids as best or as much as you can. But I think the lesson you must learn out of pull out of that is that, again, how do you instill that mm. level of dignity, that level of gratitude, the understanding of the value, but most probably more importantly, the understanding of, call it what the ingredients to this recipe is, right? Mm. So, so it's hard work, it's mm. determination, it's resilience, it's an inner desire, let's say, to want to be successful, right? Mm. And, and successful is an interesting word, or success is an interesting word. It's arguably the one word in the dictionary that should have nothing next to it, because I think that's a very personal journey. And often we say, oh, Cheslin is successful, and Davi is not. But according to who? Yep. Right? Davi is super successful if Davi's achieved what he set out to achieve. Yep. Cheslin super successful if he's achieved what he set out to achieve. Yep. And we often... What car do you drive? What clothes do you wear? Oh, that person must be successful. And I think it's probably the most whack way of looking at what success means. And again, I think those lived realities become kind of massive, call it foundation blocks as to how you start articulating or building your narrative of success. Mm. So, Jason, you mentioned you came from nothing, right? And I mean, you comparing your life to a balance sheet means that you obviously know a thing or two when it comes to money right now. Now, in our personal experience, um, people who know a lot about money usually make a lot of mistakes along the road. So I want to know what's your biggest mistake when it comes to money and what is the lesson you've learned from that? Yes, that's, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough question, Davi. Uh, My biggest mistake, oh, I'd most probably say not saving sooner. And that's weird, right? I, I classify myself as a, as a serial saver. And, and I've seen the power of, of, of savings in mine and my family's life. And again, you talk about balance sheet and that's call it a, what you learn in accounting, but you also learn opportunity cost in economics, right? <laughs> and opportunity cost is the cost of not doing something by doing something. Yeah. And I think, gee, was I've becoming a serial saver and what that's allowed me to do or provide for my family. Mm. And I'm like, imagine I had started that sooner, how much more I could have potentially have pro provided. So that's probably, a, I wouldn't say a mistake, but I think an, a lesson. And it's now something I've, I've become extremely religious about. The team will tell you in the business or lots of my friends will always tell you, my, my thing I always say is pay yourself first. You know, we, we come to work and we work a little hard and we want to make mm. contributions. And at the end of the day, we want, we want to get that paycheck because that's the reality, right? It's, it's one of the big reasons why we come to work. Mm. And we often talk like, uh, you get paid on one day and the money leaves faster than it's come in. And what I always say is pay yourself first because then I, then I think you start to maybe enjoy work a bit more because it's create, it's center as an enabler, all right? So pay yourself first, because that's why you work. And it's a, it's a simple life hack, actually, you know? If you pay yourself first, like if you take that money and you put it into a savings account when you get, get your paycheck, then it won't bother you, bother you later down the line, you know? But we find with everyone we speak to, at the end of the month, it's just not there anymore. So just taking it away, it removes yeah. the temptation, you know? One, 100%. You know? I think there's this massive vacuum, call it our financial knowledge, which I think is shrinking more and more, like I said, as information becomes available. But in the same way, I kind of talk about success and how personal that definition ought to be. The other word that I think people completely misinterpret is afford, right? So what can I afford to do? It's like, okay, I've got a thousand rand, 
that thing costs nine hundred and ninety rand. <laughs> My version of a Ford is you can't afford that. Mm-hmm. I think most people say, "Oh, I'll still have ten rand left, so I can mm. afford it." I think the, the sooner we kind of get to the stage where we appreciate value, and and I, mm. I suppose the ingredients to kind of call it generating that thousand rand, I don't think we'll willingly use nine hundred and ninety rand on something that doesn't necessarily add real value to your life over time. Yeah. What's the uh best financial decision you've ever made is starting to save and i know it's again it's a, it's a counter argument but what i think what that has taught me to do is put things in place for my kids and their kids already and it's again by looking at how the world has worked and how certain communities has called it created generational wealth it's through the provision today for tomorrow and, and you look at some of the communities who've gotten this who's done this really, really well. And again, you just look at the contribution they can continuously make to society, that becomes important. So I think just kind of having both the savings discipline is probably the biggest lesson. But I think again, it's day-to-day life, right? So you know, Davi said, I talk about balance sheets, so I know these things. Interesting. I grew up with my grandparents and my grandfather was a self-employed bookkeeper, um, you know, and he had ledgers in, at home and doing other people's books and talking about debits and credits. He used to send me to school with those old school money bags, you know, <laughs> five times <laughs> 10 cents is equal to 50 cents. And he'd put my school fees in the money bag and maybe he knew I was mischief growing up and all he wanted me to do was bring back the same money bag with a receipt in mm. right but just through those small little life facts you're like perfect there's a debit there's or there's a credit there's a debit and you start understanding how these things actually play play around in in your day-to-day life and i think not taking those small little learnings for granted when again when you start putting these things together i think what you end up with will surprise you you know is, is often people want this big windfall right, mm. or this one piece of luck and I think very few people ever get that. It's a culmination of all the 1%. You know, it's about, can I be 1% better tomorrow? Can I learn 1% more tomorrow? And I think when you start aggregating all of these 1%, mm. kind of what you end up with or where you end up, is just chalk and cheese from where you started. And, and I think there's something else that's also super important there is, you know, you mentioned the word, the term generational wealth. What a lot of people miss is, especially when you've got kids, is what you do in front of your children becomes often a bigger lesson than what you say. And so the habits that you practice becomes their habits. Outside of kind of work and family, sport's a big thing for me, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of I always created soccer for most probably making sure I don't end up in jail or in the wrong crowds and stuff like that. And even in something like that, it's about habits. So Joshua, my son, who's eight, has now like, somewhat become addicted to soccer and when mm. i go and watch him play that's most probably the one thing that sometimes makes me upset i'm like i think your coach should teach you habits like that right <laughs> habits do the right thing when this happens and i mean that's in sport but mm. like you said justin i think these things become important with money with physical well-being with mental well-being mm. it's that it's it's building the right kind of set of habits that i think influence that and we know right kids model what they see mm. You know, so again, and that might and that might be another driving force behind what I do. You know, so Joshua's uh, my son; he's eight. Kyra's my daughter; she's five. Mm. And I always say that I think my life fundamentally changed the day Joshua was born, right? Because then suddenly, like, that's a real responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a real obligation. The input you put into this these young kids' lives it's 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 essentially will inform what they become 
and not just them, right? The whole world around them. One hundred percent. And I mean, if and by teaching them the right habits, hopefully yep. they teach somebody else the right habits, and you just create this domino effect of mm. goodness, right? and that becomes massively important. Mm. Yeah, I think you can re relay that back to compound interest. It, it doesn't only apply to saving, but also to personal habits. You know, it starts off small, and then eventually it goes exponential. Yeah. So I, it's not only about financial incentive. Why are you sitting here? I mean, you mentioned that, and I think it was on the first point. So I want to know what motivates you to sit here every day. What motivates you to come back yeah. every single day and be here, especially during the hard times? Yeah, it's it's. I think the words impact. It's what's become really important to me. Is the work I do or we do as a business is it meaningful? Does it have real impact? Can we see that impact? Can we measure that? And I think the answer at the moment to all of those questions is, is a resounding yes, right? And I think that's what that's what keeps me coming back. So again, growing up, I always joke on the dusty streets of the Cape Flats, right? But again, those lived realities, Justin, is that I didn't grow up great, but I also can't say I grew up properly tough, mm -hmm. knowing how many other kids grew up worse mm -hmm. than I did, right? Mm -hmm. Do I think, would I have enjoyed to have more in inverted commas? Shit, who wouldn't? Exactly. Right? But I think understanding that there were so much more kids worse off is again, I felt like I just had this, I don't know, maybe it was just this, this inner wiring that says that impact becomes important. And when I learned early in life, the power of having access to information, mm, access to mm, resources, mm, mm. be it finance, sporting grounds for that matter, how that can fundamentally change your outlook on life and stuff like that is kind of when I made the call that through the work that I do, there must be must be real impact. And what I think I've also learned through that is, as call it as I've organically kind of navigated this corporate world, time banks obviously given me massive opportunity as a young professional. And you know, and I'll always be grateful. I'll always be grateful for that. But what I've learned is that you can do good by doing good. Mm. You know, often people mm. think that if you want to be, f again, financially well-off, and that can mean anything again, right? You potentially have to do very certain things, whatever the case may be, but you can do good by doing good, you know, and, and impacts the thing that drives me more than anything else. And that's what keeps me coming back every day. So going back to those dusty streets on the Cape Flats, is there still a little inner hustler in you? Uh, roots run deep, uh, Justin. Roots run deep, you know. So it, it's interesting because you know you, it's very easy to stereotype these things, and, and I think we fall into the same trap um, as well. But but there's definitely still a in our slay in me is that I'm responsible at the bank for our ability to call it monetize our business. So mm -hmm. a large part of that is uh, call it sales. You need to have. A little bit of hustling instinct, I think, to do well, to do well in that. So that's definitely stood me in, in good stead. And I think by nature, you almost forced to be street smart, right? Mm -hmm. And those are not things you're going to learn in any classroom. Those are not things you're going to learn in any at any business school. And I think that combination of call it book smart and street smarter, but I think as you add those two things together, I think it's a powerful, powerful combination. So, so roots definitely run deep. I love going home. I love, I love seeing kind of where I've come from. I love speaking to my friends and spending time with my friends who are still there. It grounds you properly. Mm. You know, when you come back here mm. and your life's very, very different, you look back and think, she was, this is how far I've come. I think that makes you want to do even more, right? Because, because at the same time, I know 
I'm a beacon for many other people. Mm. You know, mm. is, that, is that take that responsibility quite seriously too? The fact that it's other young people who look like me, you know, who sees a bit of themselves in me, and the fact that I've kind of gotten to where I am today gives them the belief that they cannot only do the same but do so much more. You know, and and that responsibility I take quite seriously. I take quite seriously as well. Yeah. So in your observation of people, because uh, you are one of those people that have the benefit of moving across different cultures different in the corporate world they'll say lsm levels <laughs> what would you say is your number one observation in what people would need to make money what is the number one skill set okay now if i could answer the question differently i don't think it's a skill i think it's an attitude because you take let's say take riding a bicycle right anybody can learn to ride a bicycle that's a skill but the desire to want to ride a bicycle. If that doesn't exist, you'll never learn it. So I think it's more attitude than a skill. I mean, my, if I take education, I've got a warped view on, so call it formal education, because I don't think it necessarily defines anything. Mm. Unless you want to be a doctor, an accountant, an engineer, a lawyer, don't study those technical professions. Mm. But my undergrad is industrial psychology. I think I worked three months in HR ever. Um, and the skills I've acquired and the knowledge I know is there was an inner desire to want to know those things, to want to learn those things. Right? Mm. And the analogy you can always do is that if you think about your hobby, things you are interested outside of your day job, and you ask yourself how much you know about that, one, how much you often can remember about it, and how spontaneously you can talk about it. Right? You answer those three questions, and those things will be like, I can talk about it anytime, I know everything about it all the time. Mm. but. 11 times out of 10, that's self-acquired knowledge. Mm -hmm. You've gone out to find out the information, right? If I ask you what's an XY chromosome from your biology textbook, <laughs> you're gonna struggle to answer the question, mm -hmm. right? It's because somebody told you you need to know that because you're gonna write a test about it next mm -hmm. week. Right? And that's why I think it's an attitude, not a skill. So I think it's ambition, it's desire. Once you have that, the skills you need will change all the time mm. because the world's changing all the time yeah i think that was a wonderful wonderful way of saying that you know you cannot help a person that doesn't want to be helped it's like a drug addict if they don't believe they have a problem there's no way of getting them off the stuff you know good luck so, <laughs> exactly so let's talk about that going back to the dusty streets of the cape flats i absolutely love the way you said that when you go back to your friends and your family, have the dynamics at all changed? You know, I mean, you're sitting here, like Justin said, um, the corporate world, they'll say a higher LSM class, yeah. you know. It, has, has it any way changed in any way so, when, you, when, you, when you sit in front of your friends and your, and your family there? Yeah, they, they, they tease me often about, call it the life I live today versus soft the life, life versus soft the life, life. they knew <laughs> uh, they, they, that we love, call it love together. Yeah. Um, it's probably one of the things I hate about Cape Town, to be quite honest, is when I go home, I often feel that our communities haven't moved one bit. Mm. You know, we, st we still think the same. Mm. We still do the same things. We still go to the same places. Mm. We still talk about the same stuff. And that's probably one of the things I hate about going home. I, f I don't feel there's been enough progression in those communities. It's one of the things I love about Joburg is the cultural diversity, for mm. example. You know, the fact that 
let's call it it's a it's a melting pot of cultures you mm-hmm. know? so it's, it's a lot more diverse mm-hmm. than the other provinces and again i can only speak for cape town having grown up there it's like i said it's one of the things i hate about the dynamic hasn't necessarily call it change in that aspect i often kind of feel that i've call it got to conform when i when i kind of go home not to necessarily call it make my community or my family and friends kind of feel very uh, call it awkward or indifferent because mm-hmm. I, I think my life has changed at a rate very very different to theirs uh, but at the same time I, I still feel I've got that responsibility to impart what I've learned what has worked for me mm. and I suppose to encourage some kind of change within them too right um, but that's definitely the one thing that still call it upsets me about going out mm. I feel uh, and I often feel that people with a lot more potential than I thought I had uh, not necessarily living up to that potential because of the environment you know and and potentially just not wanting to be brave enough to break that shackles and and go and mm. explore the world or the country outside of outside of those communities so yeah so it, it changes i almost can do kind of cape town depending on time of year maybe two weeks at a time max you know the kids still love it their cousins are there their, mm. their grandparents are there the great-grandparents are there so they love going there and i think that you you very quickly kind of get sucked in get call it, get sucked into that world and then that makes me want to come back here and kind of get that energy and, and adrenaline going again um, but yeah so the, the dynamic has definitely changed a bit going home but I've been I mean uh, I'm 37 now I've, I've been in Johannesburg since 2008 so what is that a third of my life has been here but basically all of my working adult life has been here right mm-hmm. so in a way this has become home as well because this is the kids home so this is this has become home and therefore I've got a new normal I sometimes go home and think oh, this place is abnormal now and so making those adjustments does does become tricky yeah yeah as I say potential uh, without desire is uh, a bit meaningless isn't it Completely, you know, like my younger brother, is, I'm, 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 I'm one of four. Uh, my younger brother plays uh, professional soccer for a living. And growing up, he was always call it the most talented, kind of technically gifted mm. one of us. But he wasn't always the most hardworking. And he'd often ask, why is he not getting the break sooner? Mm. And I think he, call it later in his life, he realized, you know, what they say, hard work beats talent. Exactly. If talent doesn't work hard. And it's exactly the it's exactly the same thing. So you, you've got to combine, I suppose, call it this natural talent or gift, I suppose, mm, mm. Uh, with the right attitude. So now I have a completely hypothetical question for you because you know, let's hope this never actually happens. Yeah, but yeah. let's assume right now today you had to lose everything: your career, your assets, your connections, everything. Let's assume you were able to maintain your knowledge that you'd built up. Where would you start again? The thing that's really important to me is to start with the end in mind. Just so you know, just I don't I don't fear that day at all. If it ever happened, I don't fear that day at all. Because it's happened before, right? When I say it's happened before, there was a starting point somewhere. So if you've started before, why can't you start again? So I don't fear that hypothesis at all. But if I were if I was forced to start again, I'd start with the end in mind. So I'd I'd redefine what I think the end is mm-hmm. and then work backwards from there. You can't run a marathon without running 5Ks first, you know. It's a beautiful answer, and I think there's a lot of introspection in that because uh, I've lost everything more than once. And uh, it was an incredible opportunity because it gave me a chance to sit with a blank piece of paper to redefine how I wanted things to be this time around. And it's an incredible opportunity. So there's wisdom in what you're saying. 
And if you get back to where you so-called were, I can assure you the second round and the third round is probably more fulfilling than the first round. It's much, much sweeter. There's another saying that say you, you know, fear nothing, regret less. Yeah. Yeah, I think the most important takeaway from this is, is it's only a mindset change. You know, you, you know, everyone we have interviewed up to today have given the same answer just in different words. Mm-hmm. But it basically it takes determination, it takes drive. And if you've got that, you can basically start again. Yeah. It doesn't matter what happens in life, you know. So you're obviously a numbers person. <laughs> now I want to ask you this. For the South African people out there, is there one piece of financial advice you can give them, the thing that have made the biggest difference for you? But yourself first, you know, is that I sound almost probably like a stuck record to my colleagues, to my family and stuff like that. Personally, for me, nothing's been more powerful. It's allowed me to take my kids to see different countries around the world. And the fact that I can take them to see other countries, other cultures in the world is because I save. You know, the fact that I can give them a sound education is because I save. So I think paying yourself first is massively uh, important. The fact that I'm comfortable in the fact that I'm definitely on a on a journey to call it creating generational wealth specifically mm-hmm. for them and the generations that follow, it's because I save, you know. And, and I think paying yourself first becomes massively important. I mean, I, my colleagues and friends still tease me, I drive a 23-year-old car with 400,000 kilometers on the clock. It's the only car I've ever owned. And I'd love to have an Aston Martin one day, so it's not like I don't ever think I want to have a nice car whatever the case may be but it must make sense and again it's about starting with an end in mind I suppose yeah I mean I think having goals and you know especially in South Africa we're very ego driven I think and having something physical to to strive for is always important but you know I always come back to the heart of money and I always say that you know wealth is about more than just money it's more than the physical things that it represents and Money is about dignity, and you'll only really know that if you don't have money and you've never had money. And I think it's important to always remember those things along the way. I look at where South Africa is right now. South Africa, along with the rest of the world, is in a very, very tight spot. And I think that the country needs inspiration. It needs it needs inspirational leadership. It's certainly not coming from the politicians. I think we can all speak very frankly on that fact. And I think there is a responsibility from business leaders to also have uncomfortable discussions around the pay gaps in this country. I think there are discussions there that need to be explored. I think there needs to be a certain amount of equality in this world, you know? Yeah, so so again, if I channel some of my economic learnings, they've got this thing called a, in economics a Gini coefficient. It's a measure of inequality across mm. the world. South Africa is on top of the list. Now, that's completely the wrong place to be on, on a list of that nature. And that's why I said if, if money was the solution, that wouldn't be the case, right? So it's clearly not money that's the solution. Um, but there's, there's definitely, in my mind, a lack of will at the moment. You mentioned that the world's going through turmoil, the country's going through turmoil. I'm of the view that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Mm. But the one thing I've learned about South Africa and South Africans is that I think the list we'd also be on top of is the resilience list. Amen. Again, having traveled a bit, I haven't seen a nation or, or a people more resilient than we are. If you can, you take the country's history, what we've been through, what we've come out of. Mm. Uh, I think we come out stronger on the back of this, on the back of this too, but not without some drastic interventions, mm. not without some strong individual will I suppose from both the political world as well as the business world again, mm. business mm. again through the work we do we think again you can do good by doing good mm. um, I think as we develop as a people 
customers are going to start holding businesses a lot more accountable mm-hmm. for the way they do business, you know, for the contributions they're making to society. And who knows, like social enterprise might become the norm where businesses have to be seen to be making meaningful contributions for the development of society. Socially responsible capitalism. Yeah, I like that. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I call it. And I say this to every single um, business leader that I'm in touch with. It cannot be that uh, business leaders take home hundreds of millions in bonuses while their lowest paid staff members cannot afford to consume their own products. Even Henry Ford had the wisdom to understand that workers on the factory line need to be able to afford the Model T. There is wisdom in that. Uh, There is a moral and an ethical contract in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need to get back to responsible capitalism and I think South Africa can be a leader in it. Yeah, spot on. I think the opportunity is definitely there, you know, because I think we've got so much ground to make up. Mm -hmm. uh, And we've got, I suppose, a lot less to undo in that regard, so I think the opportunity is definitely there. But again, we've got to stimulate growth first, right? It's interesting, we have the conversation at the bank quite often. I've been part of Time Bank from day one. One of the things I appreciate the most is the extent to which we prepared to push boundaries. Right now, we're on a journey as a business to profitability, but there's a danger in that, and, it's, and I know that sounds weird, that there's, there's a danger in that, is because again, I think by human nature, when you've got something to protect, guess what you do? You defend. Yeah. Right, so, so the challenge we've kind of laid down in the, inside the business, because a lot of us who started here are still here and are kind of in leadership positions in the business now, is to say, how do we maintain the offensive once we reach that tipping point? Because mm-hmm. I think the easiest thing you can do is defend. And, and then I think you kind of get into this, into the, into the spiral of just protecting what is mine and just kind of sticking, stick, call it sticking to your nutting there. And I think that's going to be an interesting challenge for our business in the next 12 to 18 months is when we kind of reach a tipping point to what degree we continue pushing these boundaries. Now, the interesting thing and, and why I think you use the business, our business as a, as an example, because I personally see business as a vehicle. That's it. For me, the work we do is a means to an end, not the other way around. And often we think the business outcomes is the end and what we do is we use people, resources as a means to achieving business outcomes. Mm. And I think this is an idea that will probably mess with, with corporate South Africa's mind. But I don't think that should be the outcome. I think business outcome should be a means to develop the sharpest, smartest, most empathetic individuals. Right, so how do you use the work you need to do to create the best version of your people at work, one, but more importantly, you create the best versions of your people. You create better mothers, better fathers, better brothers, better sisters through the work that you do. But what the corporate world does is I think trade human beings as commodities. You're here to do A, B, and C, make sure you do A, B, and C. However, if you tell that human being is that I want to make sure you develop without telling them, I think they'll do A, B, C, D, and E, right? It's because they feel that they value, that they the actual prize in the equation and not necessarily the bottom line. So it's something I'm extremely passionate about from a leadership perspective. And I think by using business or whatever as a vehicle to create the best versions of people, 
I think you start undoing some of the inequalities, etc. because you just create a nucleus of people that are the best versions of themselves inside and outside of work. Jason, we're obviously getting to the final part of this podcast. It's been great chatting to you. I want to ask you a last thing. You've obviously came from nothing. You are sitting here right now. You've got some great advice. Obviously, South Africa is sitting with, um, we've, we're facing a lot, of, a lot of issues, but South Africans, I completely agree with you. We are resilient. Is there some final words you can give to South Africans to inspire them? So I think stay true to yourself. I think that's important, you know. Um, and I'd say define your end. Because sometimes what happens is we, we allow our current circumstance to define what our future potentially looks like. And I'm saying there's enough examples in the country that proves that it doesn't have to be the case. So define your end. And I'd say invest in the next generation, you know. So, so look at your kids, look at your grandkids, and make sure you're preparing them for what the world will be. Not for what the world was or is, but for what the world will be. No, that's some awesome advice. Thank you very much. Jason, I hope we can get you on the podcast again. You are really inspiring to South Africans. And I really hope you get involved in the educational side of things because you've really got some great wisdom you can, you can share on that side. So thank you once again. It was great having you here today. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute blast. You've been listening to The Money Podcast. To get access to our future episodes, please subscribe to our podcast via your podcast app. And be sure to check out our YouTube channel, Global Money Academy.